Welcome to The Green Majority, Canada's longest-running environmental news hour. And today we have zero news, but we have Stefan Hostetter, who has become an excellent interviewer. He has been lining them up and knocking them down, putt, putt, putt. Unfortunately, the setting up and knocking down of an intellectual goal has absolutely nothing to do with the knowledge of the energy that we are. But uh, we'll leave it up to others to mine those depths, because Stefan is interviewing um, a man who knows a lot about public transit. What's his name? James Wilt, the author of Do Androids Dream of Electric Cars, Public Transit in the Age of Google, Uber, and Elon Musk. Does he mention Dick? What? Philip K. Dick. He wrote Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep. Um, That was the uh, inspiration for the movie um, Blade Runner. Well, there you go. Fun fact. No, there's no Philip K. Dick in this interview. But uh, you do speak for the entire hour, which is what we're about to listen to. And what is exactly of? Is he advocating for a certain kind of approach to public transit? Is he giving you a history of the approaches to public transit? The, basically, the conversation is, it starts with a bit of a history and then dives into the ways in which public transit is more effective than sort of the, what he calls the three revolutions, which is ride-hailing apps, autonomous vehicles, and electric vehicles. The ride-hailing and, app is a revolution in public transit. Well, it's being pitched a lot by bureaucrats who don't want to fund public transit. But ultimately, the book is a is a strong argument for the need for consistent and reliable public transit funding and all of the benefits you can get from that. In, and then we, we spent a bit of time also because the book was written pre-COVID. Um, we spent a bit of time talking about how he's have seen the impacts of uh, of the pandemic on public transit and how we can sort of get out of the bit of the death spiral that that COVID has, uh, has put on public transit. All right. I'm about as uh, hot as a roasted Christmas shit. <laughs> I'm about as... <laughs> I don't even know what you're going to say, but I'm concerned already. I'm about as hot as a... <laughs> I'm about as hot as a... <laughs> trying to convey my excitement for the interview. <laughs> I'm about as hot as a roasted Christmas chestnut in my excitement for the interview. Well, there you go. Let's dive in. Author James Wilt, Do Androids Dream of Electric Cars? Public Transit in the Age of Google, Uber, and Elon Musk. As previewed earlier in the show, we are back with an interview with James Wilt, author of Do Androids Dream of Electric Cars? Great book. Um, I'll start there. But by way of introduction, can you give us a bit of a backstory to your own journey and how you became interested in public transit and transit planning? Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, So I I grew up uh, in my teenage and young adult years in Calgary, um, which uh, I'm sure many people know is is quite an auto-centric city. Um, And so I was going to university uh, at an institution in the southwest of the city. I was living in the northwest uh, in the suburbs. 
And for a long while, I was, uh, you know, driving um, to and from school, which I found a, you know, very frustrating uh, experience, as I'm sure many people do who have to drive, you know, a 45 minute hour long commute every single day. Um, and it just got to the point where uh, it just kind of became too much for me. And then a, a friend who, you know, a colleague in, in school kind of brought up the idea, oh, like, why don't you try transit? There's a, um, you know, a direct transit line straight from a station right near you, which you can take straight to the university. And so I started doing that. And it was an express bus. Um, for some reason, I started taking like 8 a.m. classes, but I found out I could like sleep on the bus. Um, I didn't have to worry about you know, congestion or anything like that. I could read my uh, notes, all that kind of thing. And so it became like uh, just a, a far easier experience for me. So that was sort of like one of my introductions um, into, you know, the, the benefits of transit. But then uh, when I moved to Winnipeg uh, soon after in, in 2017, the, I found out that the provincial government had um, canceled uh, what was then a, uh, a very unique program in which the uh, province would cost share the operating funding for, for Winnipeg Transit 50-50. And so the new PC government froze that. And I started to hear just rumblings from, from transit activists in the city, how detrimental that was to the operations of Winnipeg Transit. I'd never thought about that side of things before because, you know, 50-50 funding agreement, all that sort of thing sounds like pretty boring, but I looked into it more and it, it, you know, it just became very apparent how important like reliable operations, uh, operating funding is, is for transit. So I ended up writing an article for uh, what was then the Small Canada, now the Narwhal, um, just like looking into that a little bit. And then that forced me just to become more acquainted with, with the, the politics of public transit um, as an environmental policy issue that I hadn't thought about too much up until, uh, up until that point. And then I later wrote another article for um, an online publication called Canadian Dimension, um, which I, I called for uh, a case for a renewed leftist infatuation with, with transport. Um, and it was actually after that, that Between the Lens books, which ended up being um, my publisher, uh, reached out and asked if I wanted to try to expand it uh, into a full-length book. So that, that's kind of the, the, the general thrust of, of my own experience with transit and how I kind of became interested in the policy side of things. I really like how you highlighted there the need for reliable and consistent funding, because mm -hmm. I feel like that is in itself so indicative of the difference that you highlight in the book between, you know, the Ubers of the world, which are all fast capital in, get your money out before basically regulations catch up with this thing, versus the need for you know ongoing maintenance and the ways in which our society so constantly doesn't even seem to care about the main, maintaining of things and yet that is really what keeps us going and it always is looking for the new thing or the way to make a quick buck on you know the ubers of the world mm -hmm. yeah exactly um so to get into the book it opens with a sort of a brief history of the privatization privatization of transport and the more recent threats that have emerged that I just mentioned, things like Uber. Can you give us a quick overview of how you how you see we've arrived at these political climate that we sort of exist now, and then including the future threats of what you call these three revolutions, which I believe are autonomous vehicles, uh, electric vehicles, and in ride hailing apps. In the book, um, I, I basically do a very brief, uh, like century long overview of, of what's happened to get us, us to this point. And obviously, the, like the book's focused on North America and, and things differ slightly from, you know, between Canada and the US. But, but generally, um, you know, it, it's, it started uh, sort of turn of the century where a 
lot of cities, uh, including Winnipeg, um, where, where I'm based, uh, had um, quite extensive uh, private streetcar uh, uh, lines, uh, and that these were built in conjunction with the local utility companies. Um, and there's different explanations as to why those streetcar uh, systems were, you know, phased out over time. But, uh, you know, I argue that it was undeniably part of, um, you know, an effort by the nexus of automotive and, and you know, oil companies to radically re reconstitute uh, the geographies of the cities uh, in, in what is their highly profitable favor. And so part of that was even just like problematizing the concept of, of a pedestrian or a jaywalker, um, you know, number of historians have have you know documented how um, you know prior to sort of uh, you know the arrival of the automobile, um, you know streets were used in in much different ways, um, and it really required the you know the, the discursive construction of jaywalking as as a crime um, before uh, you know auto, automobiles could really take dominance over the cities. So so there was that transformation. Um, you know, pre-war, uh, but then after the, you know, after World War II, um, there was just this rapid suburbanization uh, throughout the country that took place. And, you know, we could also see this um, through the construction of like the national interstate or the highway systems in, in the U.S. and Canada, uh, you know, with the Trans-Canada Highway um, opening in the early 1960s. Um, and so all this, you know, I also argue, and, you know, a lot of historians have argued that this is, this suburbanization was part of, um, you know, racist white flight to the suburbs um, that has to be talked about as part of this. Um, and so, you know, in the decades since a lot of like urban um, areas, inner city areas uh, were basically retreated from and um, their funding and their resources were, um, you know, taken to the suburbs. Um, and then the people who could afford to drive continued to drive and, and transit was basically systematically underfunded for, for many decades. And then, you know, there were attempts to, and, you know, some successful attempts to build light rail, to build subway, to build like commuter rail, um, all these sorts of things. Um, but without the consistent, um, you know, uh, investments of, um, you know, priority and funding into bus service specifically, um, you know, a lot of these networks um, just continue to fail uh, over time uh, to the point where, you know, it's it, it's deemed impressive in a lot of cities if, say, like 10 or 15 percent of a population takes transit on a routine basis. Right. So that's that's kind of like the situation that we're in now. Um, and there's a lot more detail to this that, that I, I'm you know, not touching on here. And I'm, I'm sure your listeners will probably um, be acquainted with some of it. But I think, you know, the, the real important part of it is that this is a, a multi-decade, you know, it's a century long process um, of uh, the automobile being increasingly prioritized uh, in terms of infrastructure, um, in terms of funding, you know, like where we actually put, put our dollars, um, you know, in terms of government spending, um, and in terms of what we think our possibilities are uh, in, in how we move throughout uh, and navigate, um, you know, our cities and our, our regions and that sort of thing. And so all that's to say is that the, the, the three revolutions um, that you mentioned are all, they're all new, obviously, um, in terms of what the technologies offer. But at the same time, they're very much continuations of the visions um, of automobility that have existed for many decades. You know, like you look back a couple of decades and, they, you know, they were dreaming up flying cars and they're dreaming up, you know, robot cars or, or, uh, or those sorts of things. And so, so you know, th these imaginaries are, are very much continuous with, with what has um, been in existence for a long time. You can go back even to some of the documentaries, like who killed the electric car 100 years ago to some of that. But of course, I will get to the, a bit about the, your concerns about electric vehicles and eventually, because I feel like we have to talk to you about that. But before we do, 
you know, I feel like this book a little bit is an argument to towards building the golden age of public transit here in North America. You make a, a differenti- differentiation note, noting that like a lot of other parts of the world already have very effective working public transit. Mm-hmm. And it's a very us problem here in North America mm-hmm. that have that have this issue. But to start there, I think you have to build a foundation. And in that foundation, it sort of hinges on a few assumptions that you lay out at the beginning of the book. And so can you tell us what those are and why you have them? Yeah, totally. And just to touch on, on your, your brief point there, I, I think it is really important to to note that, you know, in, in Asia, in Latin America, in, in Europe, like there are highly functional transit systems that, that a lot of people rely on. So, you know, th- this book's limited to North America, but um, yeah, to your point, there, there is, I, I think we can look to a lot of other countries for examples. But um, in terms of the, the, there's six assumptions that I, I start off with. And this was just a way of, of, you know, kind of planting a flag, so to speak, and, and you know, um, demonstrating to the reader where I'm hoping to go with the book. Um, and so the first one is that transportation systems have to be publicly owned, operated and planned um, to, to succeed. And so this is obviously very distinct from the vision of the three revolutions and we can get into this, um, but basically the argument there is that if we wanna build cities and regions uh, and you know, countries that are, are just and equitable um, and uh, focused on reducing emissions and all these sorts of things, it has to be publicly and collectively uh, owned. Um, so that's number one. Number two is everyone has a right to the city and this right to the city uh, language is, is out of um, radical geographer David Harvey's um, scholarship. Um, so I won't get too into it now, but basically, I mean, it's, it's somewhat self-explanatory, but um, Right to the City is really uh, focused on, on housing and anti-eviction struggles, especially. And so I wanted to kind of root it in, in that as well. Um, it's also anchored in what um, Mimi Scheller, who's a sociologist at Drexel University, um, has coined mobility justice. Um, and so she wrote a, a great book for Verso a number of years ago called, called Mobility Justice. And, and in that um, she tries to, um, you know, kind of just push back against the very narrow reading of, of transportation um, justice or, or that sort of thing as, as something just being strictly uh, uh, about um, buses or trains or, or routes or that sort of thing. And of course it is about all those things, but it's also about um, broader systems, which she um, focuses on for the micro in terms of um, you know, gender relations and street harassment all the way up to the macro in terms of um, climate change and, and migrant, um, uh, you know, like migrant rights and those sorts of things. Um, so that was the fourth one. The fifth one, oh no, sorry, that was the third one. <laughs> the fourth one is um, that improving transit uh, requires the, the reduction in um, or the phasing out eventually of private automobiles. And the argument I make around that is that, and this is something that transit planner Jarrett Walker talks about a lot is that, you know, successful transit is, uh, at the end of the day, it's about geometry in a lot of ways. It is, it's a zero sum game. And so every additional car that you put on the street is the space that you have to take away from other modes of transportation, whether that be transit or, uh, you know, pedestrian or wheeling or cycling or any of these sorts of things. Um, and so, um, you know, obviously for people who, who love their cars or, or have driven for a long time, that's, that's kind of a challenge. But I think in a lot of ways that has to be kind of at, at the center of, of our conversation around this is that, uh, and we can talk about it later, but, uh, you know, if you want buses, for example, to succeed, you have to dedicate street space to buses and for buses only to operate in or buses and bikes or that sort of thing. 
The fifth one it, um, is pretty straightforward. I'm sure your listeners will agree is that catastrophic climate change is already here. Um, you know, the day that we're recording, the new IPCC report's coming out, um, which, you know, it don't need to get into that, but, but um, all this is to say is that uh, the issue of public transit is a very urgent one, um, I argue, and uh, a, a great deal of the fossil fuels or specifically the, the oil that is burned um, in Canada and around the world is for uh, transportation. Uh, and so there's, there are a lot of arguments to be made about the need to reduce um, uh, you know, our reliance on, on, on gas and, and diesel and all the rest for personal transportation. And the last one is that um, transit is a, I call it a powerful and multifaceted issue to organize around. Um, and the reason I kind of wanted to conclude it on, on that specific point, again, is to link it back to that right to the city and the mobility justice concepts in which it is about transit, but it's also about much more than transit. We also have to be talking about housing and anti-eviction struggles. We have to be talking about healthcare, obviously in the context of COVID-19, which we'll talk about. Um, you know, access to social services, um, you know, anti-racist struggles, um, you know, like all these sorts of things. So, so it's just, it's something that is connected to a lot of other issues. Um, and in saying that, uh, it's also something that a lot of transit users or prospective transit users are often very willing to talk about and to engage um, in. A lot of people know that transit systems are insufficient and disrespectful to their time and their money and all the rest. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so basically those are the six, um, and I, I just wanted to ground it in a set of, of principles that, that helps um, sort of beckon the reader, you know, in, into the into the remainder of the book. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think anytime you're having a conversation with someone, you have to make sure you have some of the base assumptions, you know, like mm -hmm. if, if you're going to enter a useful dialogue, ensuring that you're on the same page and your base assumptions means that you can then have a fulsome conversation. I mean, how exactly. often are you watching people just talk past each other because their base assumptions are, are incorrect. Exactly. And so taking those six, you then sort of dive into a, a part of it that examines the reasons why these new three revolutions um, are not actually going to get to where we need in terms of trying to map out these other problems. Like mm -hmm. you sort of provide this grounding and you're like, and, but currently, everyone is not talking about great bus lanes. Everyone is saying that autonomous Ubers are autonomous Uber electric vehicles are going to be the solution. We'll all sit and be driven around, and that's going to be solve all our problems. Mm -hmm. And you don't agree. I think many of the listeners would not agree, but I'd like to hear exactly why um, you don't agree. Yeah, for sure. Um, and so, yeah, throughout the book, I as you say, I kind of go on a chapter by chapter uh, basis um, for um, for starters, what what the three revolutions promise, um, because to allude to your point, even just to to engage in 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 what is being sold, it's important just to, to say that up front. So for each of them, I, I acknowledge that and I, I try to kind of um, debunk or problematize some of those claims. And then after that, I. Um, I, I, I want to do the same. I acknowledge the issues that transit currently has in a lot of these arenas. But then, you know, finally, in, in part four of each chapter, I say, well, yeah, th these are obvious problems. But if, if there's proper investment and proper priority in transit, here, here's the potential, here's the possibility. Um, and so it, it goes through that for, for a number of chapters. So the first one, which will be relevant to our conversation, uh, especially is, is around climate and environment. Um, and so I can get into the, the minutia of that, but you know, basically arguing that 
um, a lot of the promises that are being sold to us um, around electric vehicles, uh, which obviously are, are the cornerstone of a lot of um, climate policy, um, are, are not uh, everything that they're made out to be. Um, and I do the same for, for ride hailing and um, for autonomous vehicles. And I, I, do, I do the same for a bunch of other issues. So, you know, racial and economic um, equality, um, labor rights, uh, surveillance and privacy, or in terms of like data ownership, um, uh, rural and inner city transit, all, all these sorts of, or rural and inner city transportation, all these sorts of things. Um, and so, so that's like the very broad overview of, of how I try to, to structure the argument. Um, but in terms of why I don't see these, these three revolutions being the things that they, they promise to be, um, it mostly comes down to, um, a lot of it comes down to, down to timeline, um, is that, uh, you know, as alluded to previously around uh, the impending, or the already actualizing climate catastrophe, is that we need to be getting um, people out of, uh, internal combustion engines uh, or, you know, cars operated by internal combustion engines into alternative means of transportation, like as soon as possible, like yesterday was, was too late kind of thing. Um, and so, so it's around timelines, um, you know, because if we want to use autonomous vehicles as an example, there are massive promises being made around that. And part of that is just to do with the fundraising cycle um, of, of how these companies operate. But we may not see, you know, fully functional autonomous vehicles. And I'm not talking about Tesla's autopilots. I'm talking about like, you know, remove the steering wheel level autonomous vehicles um, until like the 2030s, 2040s. Um, of course, when it happens, it's going to be immensely profitable for whatever company invents it, but um, or perfects it rather. Um, but that's that's a huge, you know, question mark for us is, you know, can we afford to wait any longer before, uh, you know, making this transformation that we know needs to happen? Um, so the, the timeline is one piece. Um, another piece is just what we know about the companies that are um, behind this shift. Uh, you know, regardless of, of how we may perceive their products, we could be talking about Tesla or Nissan or, or Chevy or, or whatever. Their, their primary objective is, is to make profit for their shareholders and, and for their owners. Um, and that might seem an obvious point. Um, but this is to say that, that their priorities as, uh, as a company, as an institution, are not the same as, as what it is for, for us as a society. Um, and so that's, that's another thing which ties into that previous point about the need for this transformation to be, to be publicly owned and, and operated and all the rest. Um, yeah, and I, that the, the profit piece does tie into to things like, okay, we, we can get X amount of electric vehicles on the road, um, but will they be accessible for everyone? Um, chances are very, like very high are, are no. Um, you know, electric vehicles cost upwards of, of you know, $30,000, usually higher than that, depending on what kind of model you're looking at. Um, and a lot of people can't afford new cars. A lot of people have to buy sort of the $3,000, $5,000 clunker. And so there's an economic um, equity uh, thing there is that, you know, people, you know, the people who may be able to afford and enjoy the luxuries that electric cars provide are not, uh, not the majority of the population. Um, and so there's an economic equity um, perspective. There's also the perspective, I know I'm just like rattling off, but these, these are all, I think, like different dimensions of, of why I think we need to think more critically about this. Um, is, you know, uh, electric vehicles are, are, you know, amazing technologies in a lot of ways. Um, but at the end of the day, they are cars that take up the same amount of space as, a, as any other vehicle, especially given what we know about consumer preferences and trends uh, towards SUVs and, and trucks, uh, which electric vehicle producers are, are trying hard to, to respond to. 
Um, and so at the end of the day, it does not solve um, issues around congestion, around um, you know, the, the, the use of space, um, the fact that we know that 95% of the day, uh, you know, vehicles are parked uh, in, in a particular spot, which takes up an immense amount of room that could be used for any number of other reasons. Um, and so like all of these things kind of add up. Uh, I mean, I'm mostly talking about electric vehicles and we can talk about, you know, we can talk about ride hailing and autonomous vehicles as well. But, you know, just the, 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 the idea of the book is, is to say that there's massive promises being made and there are a lot of very legitimate reasons why uh, we should think more critically about them. Because like, as, as mentioned, um, I mean, not to, not to overstate the issue, but, you know, sort of the, the future of the world does ride on a lot in many ways on, on, on uh, our approach to transportation. That's really quite critical that we get it correct. So I can, I can get into more specifics if, if there's anything that I kind of like just glossed over that you wanted to, to explore more. But that's, those are some of the, like the main, the main reasons is just like the climate, the, you know, the inaccessibility, the congestion. Um, you know, one more thing I'll just add is just for, for people with disabilities who, who can't drive or for seniors who can't drive or for youth who can't drive, um, these transformations don't, or especially around electric vehicles, don't uh, promise any way forward that, that isn't currently in existence. So, um, so yeah, yeah, we, we can, we can uh, jump to the next question if you like, but those are some of the, the main reasons that I would flag for, for why we should think more critically about things. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's fair. And I think that we don't, Need to spend too much time for ride hailing and in autonomous vehicles because mm -hmm. neither of those make very strong claims at all in terms of the environmental pieces. And honestly, if you're out there thinking that Uber is going to solve climate change, I can't help you. I've <laughs> give up. I'm sorry. Uh, if you're out there listening to the show and you think Uber is going to solve climate change, please tell me why. Email me, <laughs> tweet at me. I'll take it. I'm interested. But for the rest of you who accept that's definitely not the case, we can we can move on to some of the more I would say pressing challenges that the ultimate goal of your book, which is to encourage consistent and, and reliable funding of, of public transit, have hit uh, since mm. the book's publication. Um, well, one's more sense and the other one's more general, but we'll start there, which is that this book, you did most of the research so I can tell in the 2019 and 2018, that time frame came out in 2020 and then COVID happens. Mm -hmm. And even before that, I was interested. I, what I did know, which I, I learned from reading your book, was how ridership was already trending down mm -hmm. in 2018, 2019 in a lot of cities, because I know it fell off a cliff in 2020. Yeah, and, I, and, it, and it has not returned. Um, and I think, it, and, I, and I know, you know, in my own life, I know a number of people who end up buying vehicles mm -hmm. as a way to avoid Mm -hmm. public transit in the short term. Now, to my knowledge, it actually hasn't been shown that public transit is actually that unsafe to take uh, the very COVID. But anyways, I'm going to leave mm -hmm. that to the side and more talk about how you see that fundamental change that COVID has caused impacting sort of this need for public transit, both from a perspective of obviously, how do we convince people to come back mm -hmm. to public mm -hmm. transit? And, mm -hmm. and B, the, the, the fundamental reshaping of actually commuting, right? Like mm, so many mm -hmm. fewer people are commuting. And so what does that mean about what we need from public transit? You know, like mm. so much of public transit right now, especially here in, in Ontario, a lot of the, the, the rail is quote unquote commuter rail. They only mm -hmm. go in and out of cities mm -hmm. in the morning and evenings on rushes. And so yeah. if that's not happening, suddenly you cannot get a lot of places. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, it's it's a fabulous question, and and obviously the the timing of of the book was, <laughs> I mean, not nothing about COVID is ideal, but you know, it it came out right at the start of the pandemic, and and as you know, the book quite literally starts by saying, um, transit ridership across North America is is basically. I don't think I use the word free fall, but it's definitely falling like in a very concerning, concerning way. I, I believe the numbers I, I used were something about like 5% over a couple of years, which is like, you know, objectively concerning, but then COVID happened and then it plummeted in, in many places by 60, 70% almost overnight. Right. So, um, so it, it seemingly made um, some of that seem less timely or less relevant. And this is not, you know, me trying to like retcon my own book and say that, you know, I, I, I was always right. But but I, I think a lot of the issues that I identified in the book, which is all based on like me interviewing, you know, dozens of, of transit experts from across North America, I should just uh, emphasize was um, that, that a lot of the issues identified uh, are what has has really enabled um, transit to to suffer so badly during this pandemic and and to really not rebound in the way that a lot of politicians have expected it to, or at least they're saying publicly that they, that they expect it to. There's we can have a discussion about their their actual intents, especially when they're introducing ride hailing and, and all these sort of things at the same time. But their, you know, their, their public statements seem to think that, you know, oh, like things will eventually rebound uh, 75, 80% ridership, no problem. So the first problem is that uh, in most cities across Canada and North America uh, is that uh, a great deal of uh, revenue uh, for transit agency is dependent on, on fares. Um, and that seems, you know, quite sensible to a lot of us. You know, of course you, you walk on and, and you pay your fare and that's, that's part of the deal. Um, and in Toronto, I believe it's about two thirds is what they call the fare box recovery ratio. And so that means that the, that the rider is paying um, a majority of the fare and, and the, the rest is coming from, from government um, sources. But the problem with this, of course, is what we've seen during the pandemic is um, it becomes this, this vicious cycle is that ridership declines. So fare revenue declines. And then the transit agency, which isn't being adequately supported by uh, various levels of government uh, looks at that and decides the only thing that can be done is to cut service and reduce service means that fewer people are going to ride, especially during uh, a, a you know global pandemic in which people are justifiably concerned about sharing space with with strangers, right? Um, and so, at the very point in time um, when we know that they should have been running more transit in order to allow people to socially distance. Uh, they, most, if not all transit services across the country um, cut service. And so that, that's really uh, led to, to this vicious um, cycle where, as I mentioned, you know, like, and that leads in turn to, to less revenue and, and all sorts of things. So, so that's a big issue. The other issue that you, you, you raise is around commuting. And this is one that I think is super interesting because Traditionally, a lot of transit agencies have, you know, subjected to various levels of austerity um, that we've we've alluded to already, um, have really structured their service around the nine to five window, um, and uh, that has attracted a certain um, type of transit rider, which we can talk about, you know, the policing and the securitization of transit. But what that has also meant is that uh, transit has become um, challenging, if not unusable, to use um, for shift workers who don't work nine to five, or for people who you know have lives outside of nine to five um, and you know want to go to the grocery store or the pharmacy or medical appointment or leisure activities or visit with family or friends or all these sorts of things. 
And so this is something that's been a problem for, for far before the pandemic is that, is that uh, you know, especially bus service just has not been sufficient um, to, to allow people to do these kind of things. And as again, Jarrett Walker, whose book Human Transit is, is really worth checking out as well, um, emphasizes is that you know uh, transit can never replicate um, automobility, but it can offer a lot of the benefits um, of it in, in different ways. And one of those benefits is the idea of spontaneity, is that, that you can decide, okay, I'm going to go visit a friend for an undetermined amount of time, maybe not during COVID, but you know, the idea is that you can say, I'm not, I don't have to schedule my life precisely between, you know, this time and this time in order to catch my bus. I can, I can do whatever I want and I can, you know, rely on a bus showing up within five to 10 minutes, uh, even if it's not between the nine to five. And so that, that has very rarely been provided in, in a lot of cities. Um, I will flag exceptions of Vancouver, Toronto, depending on where you live in those cities, as well as Montreal. But for the most part, in many cities, um, people have never had that. And so in combination, you know, the, the, the reliance on fare revenue combined with the over-reliance on commuting um, has just been this massive death blow uh, to, to transit. And we can talk later about, you know, the responses by transit organizations and advocacy groups and that sort of thing. But one of the chief demands has been, you know, permanent long-term operating funding for transit so that they don't have to rely as heavily on fare revenues so that they can, you know, withstand uh, uh, situations like this, but also that they can provide service in, in non-optimal or uh, less efficient uh, or whatever, you know, business jargon we want to use, um, times in which um, people can go get groceries or people can do all these sorts of things that aren't um, strictly within the bounds of, of commuting. Um, and so, so that's like a, a kind of a, a long-winded way of just identifying those those two things that I see as the overreliance on fares and the overreliance on, on commuting. Um, but both of those things have impacted public transit in a very serious way. And I'll just leave. I'll just end uh, this particular point by saying that um, it has left transit in a very bad and scary place. Um, and we're seeing already, you know, private options begin to pop up as is happening in almost every facet of society. Uh, and that there does really need to be radical restructuring of how transit is is funded in order to really get out of this um, this quite severe problem. Yeah, and I, I want to throw what I think is maybe the third mm -hmm. wrench at uh, the whole at, at transit sort of precarious nature right now, yeah. which is this sort of politicized, 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 like, wow, I should not have given this one to say. <laughs> uh, politicized, politicization, there you go, finally, I'm laughing. All right, okay, let me try this again. <clears throat> Which is this politicization of the car driver, you know, and, spe and the specific attention given to them within our current climate. And I, I say current, and it's not actually that accurate, you know, as we discussed, as you mentioned earlier, it's been happening for 80 years, maybe, you know, it wasn't the most recent set of people who coined the war on the car here in Toronto. And, you know, it, it's been a long term, but I do think that what we're seeing right now is in some ways a return to it in some places, because there's mm -hmm. some progressive jurisdictions, you know, mm -hmm. California and BC just gave hundreds of dollars to car drivers due to rising gas prices. And ignoring everyone else who has to, you know, pay extra other prices for everything else it doesn't matter if bread costs seven more dollars. No one's getting extra money for bread. It's only gasoline that somehow holds this 
this this piece of people's brains in a way. And then here in Ontario, you know, it seems that the only move Doug Ford has in terms of populism is just car populism. You know, it's I'm going to build you more highways. I'm going to make you not have to pay for you know getting your license plate renewed. I'm going to make it as easy as possible really hyper focusing on cars as a way to do populism and politics. And that to me is got to be part of the undoing we have to see. But I'm, I'm curious about your thoughts. Yeah, another another fascinating and, and very complex question because um, at, at a lot of levels, you know, and, and this is this is a tricky part of, of transit policy or, you know, at, transportation policy in general is, is at a lot of levels um, when it comes to driving it's it's it can be tricky to have what we would deem as as rational conversations around it because um, a lot of it does come down to unconscious or conscious desires and and feelings of affect about and you know emotion about what it means to be you know in a vehicle um, and you know part of this is is just brilliant advertising and marketing by automobile companies over many many decades um, but also part of it is, you know, to do with the, the investments that have been made um, to actually allow certain efficiencies um, to be found through through automobile use. Um, as I mentioned earlier, you know, there, there was one time uh, where being a pedestrian um, was was the dominant form of transportation, and they had to invent the concept of jaywalking in order to to you know uh, assert dominance. And so, to to your point, is like you know, like what's going on on here, or how do we confront it? Is is it, it is it is really difficult. And I don't want to pretend or make it seem like it's this like silver bullet solution. Um, but I do think that the way to approach it is to make <laughs> this is going to sound like like silly, but it's to make transit far better. And so, what that means is reducing or abolishing fares. So you you want transit to be seen as a public service, which uh, you have a, a right to, you know, uh, again, with, with the right to the city. But um, as, you know, every uh, activist involved in free transit will stress, it's not enough to reduce or abolish fares, but you also have to radically improve service. Um, and so that means, you know, improving the frequency, the reliability, the comforts, um, you know, uh, just like the, the sense of, of dignity that you, you receive from transit because of like racist and classist, um, uh, perceptions over over many decades um, in, in cities such as Winnipeg, transit is, is often um, regarded as something that only uh, poor people uh, use. And, and there's a lot that we could go into uh, about that. Um, but there is this stigmatization um, of transit. And I think a lot of the ways that cities will try to confront that is through increasing securitization and trying to like remove people like specifically racialized and, and poor people from transit. Um, which is certainly not the way to do it. I think it's to instead um, attempt to articulate transit as once again, a public service that, um, that people can use and it actively improves uh, your life. It reduces the cost. The same way that Ford is making you know, his appeals to, to drivers or, or the same way that even John Horgan is making appeals to drivers is that you know, it's this pocketbook politics of, of, of reducing cost to your life, but that's that's something that um, that works. And in the case of transit, it's actually a good thing because we know it reduces emissions and it reduces air pollution and it, and it has all these these advances um, for society. The 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 issue, the the conflict um, that we see at least in Winnipeg, uh, which I'm most familiar with, 
is that the people who are most open to transit and, and you know, active transportation are those that live in the downtown or the inner city. Um, and so this actually came to like what was essentially a referendum a number of years ago. We have this downtown intersection called Portage and Main, which is like notorious because it's it's what should be the downtown or the, the very center of the city, but it's blockaded off on, on, all, sort, on all sides with concrete barriers, um, you know, which means it's only uh, car access. And we saw from the votes on that, that it was overwhelmingly people who live in the suburbs um, who, who voted against the opening of Portage and Maine and people who lived in the downtown who, who voted for it. And so there's also this dimension of things as well, which, which I probably don't have time or even you know, the, the level of sophisticated political analysis to get into, but it, it does, there, there is a lot around race and class and, and um, suburbanization and white flight and all these, all these histories that, that are very complex and to your point are often appealed to by politicians as vote winning strategies. But I don't, wanna, I don't wanna end that on like a defeatist note. I, I do wanna just stress that small changes to transit go like a huge way uh, in, in improving people's perceptions and relations to transit. Even in Toronto, you know, the King Street um, streetcar, uh, pilot project, which, you know, some business owners <laughs> had disagreements with, but in terms of actually increasing uh, the efficiency of the streetcar line itself, it was huge. Um, or, you know, abolishing or suspending fares during the during the pandemic as, as a response to try to keep people on. Like these sort of things which should not just be pilot projects, but these these are things which I think could actually begin to to um, change people's uh, approaches to transit, but it really can't be incremental, right? Like, and, and this kind of this is the underlying point is, you know, on the same day as the IPCC report comes out, we, we need like urgent action. We need to say, we're going to prioritize transit and active transportation over private automobiles, regardless of what's under the hood. Uh, and we're going to commit to to funding and to supporting these things. So, so that maybe doesn't, you know, that doesn't satisfactorily like answer, answer the question, because it is a really big one is, is how do we confront the culture of driving. Um, but hopefully that that's like that get that gives something to chew on, uh, or, or, you know, to, to, to start to think about maybe. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I can't, can't imagine you can solve that problem. That problem, again, 80, <laughs> 80 90 years old, I can't, for sure, for sure. <laughs> can't put it on you in a five minute conversation. Um, and the last two questions I have for you are both moving in the positive direction. So I'm going to end this interview on a, on a really positive note. The first is I want to pick up on something that you say early on in the book, and you referenced it early on in this interview, which is the expanse of thinking about public transit, mm. You know, not thinking about public transit just as the subways and the buses and that we normally experience, but also as the, how do I get from intercities, from city mm. to city and things like mm -hmm. that? Because one of the things we've talked about a few times on the show over the past year or so has been, in my mind, one of the biggest failures in terms of getting a real vision across of what a zero carbon looks like, Canada looks like, is this question of how do you get people from city to city yeah, yeah. if in a zero carbon world? Because it doesn't seem like the federal government wants to touch it at all. Mm -hmm. And we've already seen, you know, the I think two different bus services have gone out of business or decided they're going to stop serving yeah. anyone in the last mm -hmm. three, four years. Mm -hmm. The Automotive Transit Union has a, has a pretty robust plan of, of how to mm -hmm. tackle this. But yeah. I, I'm just curious about how you sort of see that. Like, what mm -hmm. does that sort of macro transit system could look like? And like, mm -hmm. dream a little bit, you know? 
Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I, I love that question. And it, it is so important because within transit circles, I mean, we, you know, most of us live and, and work and, and think in pretty large cities. Like, you know, I, I, I malign Winnipeg sometimes, but it, it you know, for, for its small town vibes, but it, it, is, it is a big city, right? So that kind of like informs how I think about some of these, these things. But many people live in, in rural or, or remote areas um, of Canada and, and, and deserve um, high quality transportation uh, as, as well. And so just to, to pick up on your point is, you know, Saskatchewan had an inner city bus service uh, called the Saskatchewan Transportation Company, the STC. It was a crown corp. It had existed for 70 years, um, 70 plus years, I think. And um, the SAS party finally shut it down a number of years ago. And we heard after that from um, a number of, of people and of groups of how devastating that was um, to their ability to get um, into cities for medical appointments or to, to visit friends and family or to break you know, the social isolation that can, that can come with living in a, in a smaller area, right? And so uh, overwhelmingly, this was indigenous people. Um, this was people with disabilities. This was seniors. Um, these are people who we all know have um, reduced access to transportation. Um, and so, so that was a really calamitous hit. Uh, but then Greyhound Canada uh, also shut down. Um, which uh, is, is another huge uh, thing. And, you know, of course, whenever this happens, we hear like, oh, you know, private companies will fill the gap um, in some like very limited capacities they have. But this points to, I think, uh, one of the, the main points of, of, your, of your question is, is the idea of the expansiveness is that for, for inner city or for national transportation systems to work, they need to be integrated. Um, and, you know, we even see this contradiction at the level of Toronto, you know, like in terms of, um, you know, like going to a, a different jurisdiction is, is that uh, there, isn't, there isn't an easy or, or affordable way to, to transfer fares in a lot of situations. Um, so even at the level of that, it can deter people from, um, you know, like visiting other parts of, of you know, the, the GTA. Um, but that's also a huge thing for, uh, you know, people who are trying to, to get from, say, I don't know, Alberta to Manitoba or that kind of thing, is that if you can have the guarantee that you're on one service that is an affordable fare and that you can get to where you want to go uh, and that you don't have to do complicated transfers that end up costing you more money, that's a huge um, thing. So another thing I want to point out is that Canada does have a, a national passenger rail system called Via Rail <laughs> outside of sort of the, the Windsor to Quebec City corridor, uh, which is um, quite excellent or quite good, I should say. Um, uh, Via Rail is, is hopeless. You know, throughout the prairies, you hear constantly stories of people who are like, oh, my train is running 12 hours later, 24 hours later, something like that. And so that has to do with you know, the, the, the ownership of the tracks and the fact that uh, VIA doesn't have dedicated tracks and all that sort of thing. I won't get into to, to those details, but I, you know, a real radical commitment to building up uh, not only VIA rail uh, and to making it, you know, really excellent and affordable and having its own tracks, but uh, having inner city bus services in every province, um, which can network with uh, the rail system is, is really important. Again, not just within the, the Windsor to Quebec City corridor, which tons of people live. And so that should be bolstered, although the Liberals' latest plan apparently is to privatize part of the upgrade of that. But um, but what, yeah, what we really need to, to see is a, a commitment to uh, publicly owned um, services, which is what I mentioned in, in one of the six points is that um, it's not run for profit. It is run uh, to, you know, for, for commitments like reducing emissions, for improving economic and, and you know, racial equality, for 
um, improving accessibility for people with disabilities. Um, and all these things are, are greatly heightened, I would say, in, in rural and remote areas. Um, because it's true that in rural and remote areas, far more people drive and have to rely on um, automobility. But a lot of people don't or can't um, drive, you know, for, for whatever reason, um, whether it's to do with cost or, or disability or that sort of thing. And so it's really essential that um, that becomes a priority as well. And the last thing I'll note on, uh, is that um, in the absence of, of, these, uh, of these approaches, you know, via rail, inner city transit, all these sorts of things, the only options that people have uh, is to drive their own automobile, which I will add is, is really dangerous. I didn't really get into the danger of driving, um, you know, for, for drivers themselves, but also pedestrians and cyclists. Um, but if you're not driving, if you, if you can't afford it or don't want to or can't, um, the only other option is, is to fly. Um, and from a climate point of view, once again, flying is, is not a good or sustainable option. And so we, if, you know, Canada has any aspirations to actually, you know, radically reducing emissions in order to, to, to cut its, uh, you know, uh, emissions to where it needs to be to fulfill international obligations and all the rest, it really needs to be providing uh, ways of people getting around the country because we're the second biggest country in the world. Uh, and, and there's basically no way to get around aside from flying, which I think should be like a national embarrassment. Uh, and uh, yeah, but to leave it on a positive note, I, I think, as you mentioned, um, Amalgamated Transit Union, ATU, has put out a really great call for, for a national um, inner city uh, bus system, which um, I'd encourage people to check out. Um, the ideas are out there. It's, it's not like we're not, it's not like a fantasy. I think it's totally doable. It just requires um, political will and, and most of all funding. Yeah, for sure. And so let's bring it all home. Uh, your, your last, the book's final section is about how we could see a North America with a great public transit system. Mm -hmm. And I would love to give you a chance to sort of just give us that vision because yeah. You know, I think positive visions end up being so much more, you know, so so galvanizing towards the yeah. towards the future. So, what Absolutely. is Absolutely, yeah. Thanks for the opportunity. Uh, so, so one which many transit advocacy orgs have been calling for is permanent long-term operating funding for for transit. That's that's at every level of government. Um, currently, the municipal governments tend to be uh, responsible for it, but we're talking federal, territorial, provincial governments all are um, not only cost-sharing the, the current amount of what it costs to run transit, but you know ratcheting it up because you know we know that transit works and it has worked for a century and we, and we need to radically improve it so that's a big one um we need things like bus only lanes and so this is part of what <laughs> uh, this is why i left it on so, sort of an unsatisfactory note with the um question about drivers but really we do need to be taking space like street space away from drivers and reallocating towards transit vehicles bikes pedestrians wheelchairs all that sort of thing um, and so what we know about bus only lanes is that it radically improves, improves the efficiency and the reliability of buses, which is huge. And it's a really important thing when it comes to economic and racial um, equality uh, in transportation. Um, I mentioned already, but reduced um, and hopefully eventually um, free transit, fare free transit. Um, and uh, I, I'll make a brief pitch here, but not only is it important for um, you know, economic equality reasons and for getting people back on transit after COVID. Um, but when it comes to um, all the, uh, you know, racist surveillance and policing of um, transit users and, and, you know, there's just a lot of horrendous stories of, of the way that people have been profiled um, through the administration affairs. And we also know that there are constant um, altercations uh, between 
riders and drivers. So this is a workplace safety issue as well, as you remove the fare box or you reduce the amount that people have to pay and it reduces the likelihood that drivers will be assaulted during the course of duty, which is a huge issue. So that's another one. Um, another one I've already mentioned is really seamless integration with other modes of transportation. So that's not only um, going from the TTC to, to go um, or, or, or that sort of thing, or, or from via rail to this you know, future inner city bus service, um, but it's also allowing people to be able to bike uh, to their bus station or to wheelchair or to walk to their bus station uh, or train station um, and to be able to, for example, lock up their bike um, in a free, uh, easy to use secure locker. Um, because, you know, everyone starts or ends their transit trip as a pedestrian or in, in a wheelchair or on a bike. Um, and so, um, so these are things that we have to keep in mind. Um, sort of on that level also, uh, and this may seem like a little particular or pedantic, but like high quality bus shelters. Like we live in Canada, I don't, probably don't need to remind anyone, but Canada gets really cold. And hopefully with higher quality transit, people won't have to worry, worry about waiting around for, for buses too long. But having high quality bus shelters, um, you know, which offers heating um, in the winter and maybe, maybe let's get real utopian, a, a drinking fountain in the summer um, will help people actually be able to, you know, maintain uh, their, you know, preferred temperature and all these sorts of things and actually incentivize people to, to use um, transit. I'll just rattle off a couple more because I, I, I know in the interest of time, but um, good unionized work uh, in the operation maintenance building cleaning of transits. Um, you know, for example, we know that if we want to expand transit, we need to build a lot of buses. So for that work to be good and unionized, you know, there's a, yeah, um, that's as a part of a job strategy or, or that sort of thing, that's, that's huge. Um, just generally in terms of like thinking about how we proceed from this, we just need more local transit organizations fighting, um, you know, made up of riders and workers, um, you know, fighting for better funding and prioritization of transit. So for some examples, we've got TTC riders in Toronto, we got free transit Ottawa, we got free transit Edmonton, we got organizations in, you know, Vancouver and Winnipeg and all over the place. And so um, that's more of just like how do we win these things is that we just really need to be building up these local capacities because like frankly we know that politicians are not just going to give them to us um one new group that i'd like to shout out is they're called ottawa transit safety project and so they're they're arguing against um the funding of of more police and security uh and instead um arguing for better transit um and so i think that's a that's a really great project um and so those are some of the, the, the main things. Um, I guess I'll just leave on a note that like we shouldn't get, I know I've been talking about buses a lot, but we shouldn't get too hung up on like technologies. A lot of transit wonks can kind of nerd out on technologies and, and I appreciate that from time to time. But really at the end of the day, this is about um, commitment and, and funding and this being prioritized uh, by every level of government. Because without that, we're gonna see what we've seen during COVID-19. Um, happen again and again, because um, unfortunately, I don't think these kind of situations are going away. Um, and so it just, it really requires a, a radical reimagining of, of what transit is already and what it can be in the future. Amazing. Um, that is such a beautiful note to end on. But before we do, folks have now heard you talk about the book, but how can they pick it up? And also you have a new book. If you want to mention your new book coming out in July as well, please do. Sure. Yeah. So uh, this book, as mentioned, is called Do Androids Dream of Electric Cars? And you can find it 
basically on any online bookstore. I won't name some of them by name, but I'm sure that you can find them um, or you can order through the publisher between the lines uh, uh, books. Um, also check your library. I'm, uh, and if it's not in your library, um, it'd be awesome if you could request it just so other people have access to it uh, as well. Um, and then the upcoming book in July um, is being released by Repeater Books out of the UK and it is on the politics of alcohol. Um, and so it's called uh, Drinking Up the Revolution. Um, so that comes out in July as well. But if people wanna keep up with my musings on, on transit and alcohol politics and all the rest, um, I'm, I'm very much on Twitter, uh, just James Well. So that's, that's where I hang out. Uh, and as someone who recently followed you on Twitter, a very good follow. So recommend that too. <laughs> Um, uh, this has been James Wilt, author of Do Androids Dream of Electric Cars, Public Transit in the Age of Google, Uber, and Elon Musk. Thank you so much for being here and have a wonderful day. Thanks so much. You too.